welcome to the latest episode of the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg and in this podcast we share some of the stories behind the stories on our website and in our monthly magazine with the hope that you'll become a subscriber, supporter or even a member. You can get full details on the website. Just head to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Your cash pays for our journalism, which wouldn't exist without it. Now, this time we're going to be hearing from a former Trident submarine commander about why he wouldn't press the nuclear button while Boris Johnson was calling the shots. But first, the claim that the UK government actively avoided looking for Russian interference during the referendum on Britain's membership of the EU back in 2016. MPs on the government's Intelligence and Security Committee made the accusation in a long-awaited report, which said the UK was, and I quote, clearly a target for Russian disinformation, and that attempts by the Kremlin to influence elections in the UK were the new normal. Well, I'm joined now by Zarina Zabriskie, who has written for the Byline Times about President Putin and his ascent to power. Zarina, hello. Joining us from California. How are you doing? Hey, Adrian. How are you today? Well, I'm very good. It's uh, a little bit cloudy where I am in Birmingham. You've got slightly warmer weather, I think, in California. Yes, it's um, 42 centigrade we are baking here in uh, Northern California. Wow, that sounds painful. Now, this report that's come out from MPs in the Intelligence and Security Committee, I'm guessing there's not much here that will surprise you. Sadly, not a word, I have to say. I've read my share of reports, of course, from the U.S. intelligence services, Mueller report, various European Union uh, reports and so forth during the last five years. And it never makes for the most exciting reading ever. And I have to uh, admit that uh, this report was written very creatively. There are unusual use of words here, such as nihilistic and paranoia. It's very creative and imaginative in a way, as far as the language goes. And I should say that there are some glimpses into the direction where I think it should be going. But overall, it's vague, partially because the annex and the the, the main part of the report is not being published or shared for the security reasons right now. So what the public sees the 50-something pages of the report, um, mainly the summary and a very brief summary at that. Yes, as you say, a significant part of the report is not seen by the public. We just get a, a, a shorter version. But even so, its conclusions are are pretty punchy and aimed at the government, saying that the UK is playing catch-up, needs to take immediate action against Russian activity in the UK. What is the purpose of Russia spreading disinformation and becoming involved in UK elections? I think the main purpose of this exercise that we're doing here right now and that the the committee should have been doing is the broader look at what happened during the last five years and actually during the last 30 years in the world. 
The threat is indicated quite well in the report. They are indicating the threats to the UK as cyber, disinformation and influence, and Russian expatriates. And that's the first part of the report. Then, later on in the report, there's an interesting short sentence. The UK now faces a threat from Russia within its own borders. And now they are getting closer to the matter. Because what actually is happening is that the UK is now facing a threat from Russia within its own brain, within its own collective mind. And Putin's aide once, like last year, wrote about it uh, in an article saying that we are not interfering in the Western elections. We are interfering into your brains. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's that's a quote from Putin's aid article. The reason they are trying quite successfully to interfere and change the mentality of the country in question, whether it's the UK, the US, or Italy, or France, overall the, the Western world, is because it's much cheaper to change the ideas and to change people than to engage in um, modern warfare. And for that, Russia simply doesn't have the resources. And the reason they need to eventually conquer the Western world is very simple. Their illicitly gained prosperity or the wealth of of Putin's circle, the oligarchy, is locked in London, Swiss banks, Deutsche banks, and offshore companies throughout the world. So by conquering this mental space and eventually the political landscape of the West, Putin and his circle, the Kremlin, is protecting its wealth, prosperity, and its staying in power. So this is money which has been taken out of Russia by Putin and his circle and the oligarchs who are close to him. So you're saying that they need to keep the West on side now in order to protect what you would regard as ill-gotten gains. Uh, Yes, simply put, it's just that. There are, of course, you know, um, this is the immediate goals. There are long term goals and short term goals and there there are more grandiose goals and that's simply the world dominance and overpowering the west that's a slightly different topic and um we can go into the psychology of it which reports also touches upon and so does um Christopher Steele's witness statement and it's important But the point I'm talking here and now is uh, very, very pragmatic. That there is money that Putin and his cronies have stolen from uh, appropriating the natural resources, oil and gas. And it's not safe for them to keep this money in Russia. So this money is being shipped abroad. And London is the one big station where the money is kept. And therefore, this bank, or the safe for their money, needs to be secured. And the easiest and cheapest way of doing it, which is also very known to the former KGB 
circle, which of course Putin is, is by applying active measures and changing the uh, collective mentality and the political landscape of, in this case, the UK. And you've written extensively about the the basis of the wealth of Putin and his circle, which you say emanates from the chaos of the breakdown of the former Soviet Union. Yes, that's a very good point. And I, I have, because I see my role here is to cover aspects that are not usually getting enough attention in the West. And here comes the mentality gap or the difficulty in perception due to projection, you know, because we all are projecting what we know individually and collectively. And what the UK knows about itself is not being very instrumental in understanding Putin's Russia mentality. Because Putin's Russia is incredibly unique state. And uh, say Christopher Steele calls it a rogue state. Margot calls it a mafia state. What you really need to know here is that in the 90s, when the USSR collapsed, what state was the former communist and the former KGB apparatus, the security services, right, which now became the FSB state. It didn't collapse along with the USSR. It just changed colors like a chameleon. But it also merged or fused with the organized crime at the time. And gaining on what it had, say, on the old uh, party gold or the, the funds that the Communist Party had and the wealth that the organized crime circles had accrued, say, through cocaine and heroin trade, joined forces with the what now is known as oligarchs that also gained their wealth by appropriating the oil and gas industry. And so these three, mafia, KGB, and oligarchs, created the core of Putin's Russia. And that's what we know as a rogue state or mafia state. And that that is crucial to understanding Putin's Russia, its goals, and its policies. If we forget about that, we will be dealing with this country as a, as just another country that we are familiar with in the West. And it is not. It is really critical to understand that. So the underpinning of the state, as you describe it, is gangsterism. I saw a a quote where you said that every state has a mafia. This is a country where the mafia is the state. Exactly. You talk about the money coming in to the UK. Obviously, it's not just Putin's money, is it? There will be wealthy Russians who have invested in various parts of British life, whether that's football, whether that's academia, whether that is the arts. And in some cases, the institutions that have received that money have been incredibly grateful for it. Should we seriously view all of it as tarnished? Yes. And it's, again, a very good question. In here, uh, come two concepts that 
the Western audience is not familiar with, and that is, again, critical to understand, to confront it. I've written about it in my articles for the Byline Times and other publications. One is Krisha, and that could be translated as protection, vaguely, and it has been defined really well in one of the trial of the High Court in London during one of the trials of the Russian mafia. Krisha literally means a roof, and that is a notion taken from the mafia, from the gangster street language from the 90s, and say, imagine there are um, people who are running kiosks selling cigarettes, and they are being targeted by the street gangsters. So in order to get protection or krisha, this kiosk owner would go to, a, let's say, godfather, right, who would be protecting all kiosks in this district. And this godfather would be the Krisha, right? So this is a notion known from, say, godfather or, or like Italy and things that we know about mafias in different countries. However, what's different in Russia is that starting in the 90s, Krisha became political institution. So basically the mayor's office of St. Petersburg was the Krisha or the, the, this protection apparatus for all the gangsters, all the mafia members in St. Petersburg. And basically what is known to people who, who read and write about it, that St. Petersburg basically took over the country because Putin, of course, is from St. Petersburg, and that's where I am from as well. So he moved to Moscow to become the president in 2000, and he took with him his close circle, and that Krisha became the protection for the whole mafia in the country of Russia. And you said there was another word as well. Yes, I'm getting to that because we're talking about the money. The way it works in Russia, I'm not sure if that works the same, say, with the Italian mafia. But the Russian mafia has what it's called abshak, or collective money, collective bank. And that's where they pitch in and put their their money, the, the, the percentage of their money in order to have this protection, in order to be in the structure, and basically in order to survive. Because if you refuse to live by the rules of this, the, the whole organization, the whole mafia state, you would be simply eradicated. You would be murdered. That, that It's not like you just won't be allowed to be a part of it. You won't be alive. So in some ways, and a lot of experts have commented on it, Russian oligarchs' money are not necessarily their own money. In a way, at least a part of it belongs to the Kremlin, and that's the only way they are allowed to function. Christopher Steele described the Kremlin as Ottoman court, or their description of, of oligarchs as vassals. There, there is the, this, this relationship between Putin and his cronies. They, they are sharing that money. So in a way, the money that you see in London are not individual funds of 
each and every one of the oligarch. It's a very simplistic explanation because, of course, it is. Like if you are trying to take a part of this money, it will look and appear that this money belongs to a particular oligarch. But in Russia, it's a common knowledge that the mon- this money in a way and what they call abshak, it's the collective money. And so this money is being invested in the massive influence operation. Say there would be a respected businessman who got the British citizenship while ago, long time ago, and they will be investing in mass media or educational institutions or cultural institutions. And in that way, they're serving the Kremlin by getting the influence and recruiting the enablers and that's the word is used by the the report itself, and spreading the influence, created this network of lawmakers, bankers, and the team that basically makes sure that Russian or the Kremlin, we're talking about the Kremlin, dominates London political and financial landscape. Very interesting. Christopher Steele, for those who don't know, is a former... British intelligence officer. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry, I should say, has called the report Russophobia, anti-Russian, effectively. And the UK government has rejected the MP's call for a full assessment by intelligence agencies of potential Russian meddling in the 2016 referendum, saying it had seen no evidence of successful interference. Number 10 denied the claim that it had badly underestimated the threat from Russia. In your view, Zarina, what should the UK government do now about Russian involvement and interference? The things that do not work and that are noted in the report is the lack of cohesion and streamlining in confronting the Russian threat. And I I will be quoting here. They are writing, who is responsible for broader work against the Russian threat? There are a number of agencies and organizations across the intelligence community which have a role in countering the Russian cyber threat. And it was not immediately apparent how these various agencies and organizations are coordinated and indeed complement each other. And then they go into listing these agencies, say there's the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport that holds primary responsibility for disinformation campaigns. And the Electoral Commission has responsibility for the overall security of democratic processes. Now, uh, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport is a small Whitehall policy department, and the Electoral Commission is an arm's length body. Neither is in the central position required to tackle a major hostile state threat to the democracy. And then they are going into listing what appears to be a plethora of plans and strategies with direct relevance to the work on Russia by the organizations this committee oversees, which is the cross-Whitehall Russia strategy, the ICE plan requirements for Russia, the three-agency joint approach for Russia, and a separate tasking and prioritization process for defense intelligence and the fusion doctrine overlaying them all. 
there is this uh, total confusion, in other words, and here I'm not quoting. What, what one gets from this picture is that the multiple agencies all working in their own directions and trying to balance out this work, while in Putin's Russia, and again, here I'm turning to the report, the decision is immediate, fast, made in many cases by just one person, Putin, or sometimes by a very narrow circle, and very well coordinated and streamlined. So the response is inadequate, as you see. Then another aspect of it is uh, legislative, particularly the UN Charter, which they apply to cyberspace, but nobody really understands globally how this law works when it comes to social media. So the social media companies like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter are not held accountable by the international law. And there needs to be the regulatory framework. It needs the urgent review in words of the report, because that's where the major attack is coming from. But as, as you might remember in the beginning of our conversation, I said that the Kremlin's main goal is changing the collective mentality. And that's done mainly by the social media, by micro-targeting, by astroturfing, and many other modern strategies and tactics. But there is no framework of law to apply to this attack. And that's what needs to be done. And the UK government should be a part of this group eff- uh, effort, I believe. Absolutely fascinating. Zarina, thank you so much for your time. Zarina Zabriskie in California. You can read more from Zarina in the Byline Times. Zarina, thank you so much. Thank you, Adrian. It was a pleasure. Zarina Zabriskie there. Zarina, thank you. And you can read more from Zarina online at Byline Times or by subscribing to our splendid monthly magazine. Just go to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now the story of the former Trident submarine commander who told Byline Times he wouldn't press the nuclear button if Boris Johnson was in charge. Dr Andrew Corbett was formerly in command of two Trident submarines. He's now a teaching fellow at the Defence Studies Department of King's College London and at the Joint Services Command and Staff College. Andrew, hello, welcome along. Hi, good evening. Now before we talk about your article in Byline Times, just tell me a little bit about your military career. Um, I retired from the Royal Navy in 2017 after 33 years in service, almost all of my operational time in submarines. And my operational period uh, culminated in uh, command of HMS Vengeance and then HMS Vanguard between 2003 and 2007. And these are two nuclear submarines. They carry ballistic missiles that could cause incredible amounts of damage. Yes, the, both the Vanguard class, actually the first and the last of the, the, the four submarines that comprise the, the SSBN fleet, which are the, uh, the four, as you say, ballistic missile armed submarines that, that, uh, that provide the UK's strategic national nuclear deterrent. Wow, pretty heavy responsibility. Did it keep you awake at night? To be honest, no. In, in terms of operating the submarines, you, you're trained to do that. In terms of the... Uh, the potential decisions that you might have to make, then that's something you have to, to decide on before you take up the command. And uh, if you're not comfortable with it, then you're in the wrong job. And you said in your article that a nuclear submarine 
is a political rather than a military weapon. What did you mean by that? It's not so much the submarine, but the, the missiles they carry, Trident, is part of, the, as I say, the, the UK's national nuclear deterrent. And the nuclear deterrent really has no military purpose, if you like. Obviously, it can deliver devastating military effect. But the point of that military effect is entirely political. You're not going to use a Trident missile to, to destroy a submarine. There's no point. You can destroy the submarine with, um, with, with conventional weapons. But the, uh, the, the use of a Trident missile during a crisis massively changes the, uh, the political decision-making process that the, uh, the adversary would be facing. So the point of these weapons is not in and of themselves military. They are inherently political. It's all about affecting the decision-making processes at the highest level in the political processes of any adversary. And to put it crudely then, this is the ultimate big stick which you hope never to use because the adversary, as you describe it, the enemy will be frightened to push you beyond a certain point. That's exactly right. The whole point of having the big stick is that you never have to use it. And one of the benefits of having the big stick is that everybody recognises you've got one and therefore you don't have to use it. And it's not just a case of you don't have to use it with someone else who's also got big sticks. The whole point or, or part of the, uh, the, the benefit, the, the part of the rationale of nuclear deterrence, commonly misperceived, is that it deters or suppresses the, um, the incidence of, of any kind of conflict between great powers. So much of the 20th century was dominated by the great powers of the time uh, engaged in, in wars using conventional means, which were, were sort of killing humanity off at a truly industrial scale. Yet the advent of nuclear weapons uh, in 1945 is, in, is perfectly coincident with an, a complete drop-off in the, uh, the use of warfare, really, uh, between great powers as, as a political tool. And for me, that brings us right back to that rationale that these are about um, political decision-making. And to be blunt, people are so scared of nuclear weapons that they have stopped thinking about war generally as a, as a tool of policy. But because you'd signed up to do that job, I'm taking it that if you had been asked to press that nuclear button, you would have done so. Yes. What is the chain of command that leads to the launch of that missile? There's a thing called the National Fire Control Message, which is uh, issued by the Prime Minister personally. And uh, it's then, it's obviously handled by military uh, communications means. Uh, but the next person who, who acts upon that, if you like, is the, uh, is the commanding officer of the, the submarine in question. So there's no great bureaucracy involved, is there? It's a pretty quick line of command. And you wrote that you would have to have absolute faith in the political leader who ordered you to, to press that button. Yes. Uh, on receipt of the, the order, the, um, the, there's, no, there's no scope there for, for equivocation. You, you kind of get on with it. So therefore, prior to ever putting yourself in the position where you might receive that order, i.e. before you would take command, you have to be very sure 
the, the people who would be sending you that uh, that order are people in whom you have faith. Obviously, the, prior to, to issuing the, 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 the order or the instruction itself, the, the Prime Minister would, one trusts, be taking advice from Chief of Defence Staff, the, the FCO, etc. And all of that would be uh, involved prior to the issue of the order. But there is nothing between issuing the order and receipt of the order where there's any debate or advice offered. And you made it clear in your article that you were not making a party political point, that you would have, had you been asked to do so, you would have pressed the button, but not if it was Boris Johnson. You wouldn't have felt able to command under him. Why not? I can only really go on on what I can see. Uh, I think there is fecklessness uh, in government decision-making. This government has been faced with a, with a crisis that most of its predecessors haven't been. And its reaction to it, I think, has singularly failed to impress. It's, it seems to be reacting more on, um, almost on caprice sometimes. And there is a, there's a really nasty whiff of this government not actually acting in the national interest, but acting in what seems to be the interests of the people who comprise the uh, the cabinet and their associates. And that really doesn't fill me with the confidence that I would want. Since the article was published, have you had any feedback from your former colleagues? A little. They're not renowned. You know, Samaras tend not to, uh, to seek the limelight. So, so I, I've had a little feedback from close friends, uh, which has generally, in fact, exclusively been very supportive of the, the rationale that I put forward. Really interesting to speak to you. Thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Andrew Corbett. Really appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be back in a fortnight with the next Byline Times podcast. If you want to contact me in the meantime, I'm at goldbergradio at gmail.com. Do keep checking the Byline Times website for great stories that tell you what the papers don't say and help fund our journalism as well. Please go to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. See you next time.